We've been opening our Bibles to see what God has to say about hope. Uh, Biblical hope is one of the most important realities in the Christian life. If you're visiting us and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that biblical hope is very different, we're finding out, from the way that we usually use the word hope in our day-to-day usage. There is a disconnect between the way we usually use hope and the way that God uses hope. So what we're doing is we're trying to recover hope by searching the Bible together. This morning we're studying really just one very magnificent verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That verse is verse 58. But we will read, as I read it now, above and below that verse to sort of set the context before we dig in. Once again, 1 Corinthians, we'll start in verse 54. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And let's actually read it. Verse one of chapter 16. It's important, believe it or not. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. This is God's word. Let's just pray briefly before we dig in. Lord, would my words and would the meditation of all of our hearts together, even as I preach, be pleasing and acceptable to you. Holy Spirit, as we submit to the words that you inspired, that we just heard read, challenge us, encourage us, and change us into Jesus's likeness. Would we not just comprehend information, but would we apprehend you, Lord Jesus? Would our hearts sing? And as they sing and as they worship, would we be restored into your image? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So for the past 10 years, I have been slowly building up a board game collection. It's hidden. It's underneath my books. But part of the reason this collection is growing and ever growing, if you're in my home group, this is not news to you. But part of the reason that this collection is growing is because I love to teach new games. I do. I love it. But if I'm honest, my wife's here. She'll attest. She struggles. <laughs> she struggles because she always wants to play an old, tried, and true game. And I have this impulse to teach a new game, and she has an impulse to just let's play what we know how to play. And so I can kind of get into the game and know how to make the moves and sort of know what the end goal is, you know, those kinds of important things when you play a game. She hates the feeling of being lost in a game. Can I get an amen? Anybody? Yes? Do you know that feeling? Well, my wife, as usual, is right. Okay? There is nothing worse than being lost in the middle of a game without knowing the end goal. When you don't know the end goal, each move becomes meaningless. And you start drifting. 
You start watching TV instead of engaging in the game in front of you. Or you start grabbing another drink or some more chips, and then you start thinking, when is this going to be over? And you end up distracted, wishing you were doing something else. Now, what we believe, what this says, this little game, what this says about life is that what we believe about the future, the end goal, what we believe about the future has the biggest influence on how we live today. Most of us do not live with a strong sense of the future. And so we live discouraged and distracted and disengaged lives. Some of us, I think, feel like we're trapped in a giant Catan game. Or, or pick your other game that you're totally confused by, that your friends love, but you hate. Whatever that is. You're trapped in it and you're thinking, I'm moving pieces, but why? And who cares? Even Christians can live, I think, their daily lives without a clear sense of their future. And this is a tragedy because God is giving us, in His Word, a clear picture of our sure future. Maybe not in this life, but in the life to come when Jesus returns. It's a clear picture. And we're given this as a gift. And so it is a tragedy that when God calls His people over and over and over again in His Word to live in light of the sure future that is yours in Jesus, that we are living lost and distracted lives. We're discouraged so easily in our marriages. We're discouraged, I think, so easily in our parenting. We're so discouraged in our jobs. And could it be because we're not living in light of the future that God promises us and gives us and assures that that it's ours over and over again? Could it be? That's why we're focusing this morning on one verse, one little verse, one magnificent verse in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This verse... And the reason I'm choosing it is because it is the culminating verse in one of the most amazing, magnificent chapters in the whole Bible where the Apostle Paul unpacks for us a clear picture of our future. It's called the resurrection chapter. The resurrection chapter. And he's not speaking of a metaphorical resurrection. He is unpacking for us the future that we all have in Christ and that this world has in in His saving work of being not just redeemed but resurrected bodily so that we will exist in bodies cleansed of sin and of death and of brokenness and that we will on that day also be declared just. We will be declared Forgiven because we are standing in Christ's righteousness. And he is unpacking this for us. And it sort of culminates in the verses that I just read for us in verse 54. He's talking about the perishable, putting on the imperishable. The perishable, our lives that are, are so wrecked by death. And some of us feel it closer than others right now. And on that day when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death. Where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? 
It's over. Resurrection wins. Death no longer has the final word. And Paul is unpacking this and he's crescendoing to this amazing victory. He talks about sin. He's saying sin doesn't even have the last word. You will on that day stand victorious in the presence of Jesus, worshiping. And all that is broken in this world will be made new. And then verse 58 comes along and he says, therefore, and what would you expect that therefore to be there for? Maybe hang on, maybe, I don't know, just cling and, and, and bear with your life right now. No, what he does is surprising to me. Let's look again. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, because our future is sure and because, as it's been said, our future is bright, what we do today matters. Resurrection hope, far from making us disengaged in our life today, ought to, when apprehended and comprehended by faith, ought to change the way that we live today in profound ways. Resurrection hope means today matters. Resurrection hope means today matters. Paul says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, the things that you do today and tomorrow, is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not purposeless. It matters. It matters. So resurrection hope changes the way that we live. Andy Crouch, he distinguishes helpfully between gestures and postures. A posture is a manner of standing. A gesture is a particular movement. And what I would like to suggest to you this morning is that this one verse this morning tells us that resurrection hope changes our posture and our gestures. And we'll look first at our posture, our manner of standing. If you have resurrection hope, then today you will stand differently. How will we stand? Well, let's take a look. Therefore, he says, be steadfast and movable. Steadfast and movable. Steadfast and immovable. These are architectural words. Steadfast, you could translate as stand firm. So in light of resurrection, hope, stand firm. Immovable means unshifting. Right next to our house, we live by Grandview Yard. They are building this massive nationwide building. And they've been working on it forever. And what they've been working on for the most part, frankly, is digging a hole. It's been, one ma- it's been fun for our kids when we go on walks. This massive, like huge, multi, multi, multi-pitch or multi-football field length. I said pitch for you soccer fans. <laughs> Swimming pool, basically. Big old hole. Now, as they're building on it, the higher they go up, the less I'm surprised, frankly. It's immovable. It's steadfast. It's standing firm. And that's the imagery that Paul gives us, those who have a resurrection hope. Paul is saying that because the resurrection is sure, stand firm. Now, stand firm in what? We get a clue in, I think, verse 1 of chapter 15. If you just take a quick look, 
Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. In which you stand. So there is a sense in which we stand firm on the gospel. We stand firm on what Jesus has done and not on what we do. We stand firm, I think we get clarity, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If you want to turn to that or if you can listen along, that's fine as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, same author, he says this, and he uses these same words. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, this is verse 23 of chapter 1 in Colossians, page 981. If you indeed continue in the faith, here's the words, stable and steadfast, or standing firm. Steadfast, not shifting, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So steadfast is the word Paul uses in our passage. And then not shifting is the inverse of the word that Paul uses. Paul says immovable. He's here saying, don't, you're not being moved. By what? By what? The hope of the gospel that you heard. The gospel, what Jesus does, has a future orientation. A resurrection orientation. And that's what makes us stable. That changes our posture. So that we stand today on solid ground. It's our only secure posture. Last spring, I was climbing at the Red River Gorge with some friends. And as I was climbing, there was a slab of rock. And it was so tempting. But somebody had marked with chalk in their own chalk bag an X on the slab of rock. It was really big. It was really, really grippy. You really, I was tired. I really wanted to hang on that thing. So I yelled down at the belayer and I said, what's the X mean? He's like, don't grab that. That means somebody saw that it was a little bit flimsy and they were helping a brother out. Or a sister for that matter. And as tempting as it was for me in that moment, I didn't hold on. I didn't hold on. I found something else. That's what Paul is doing for us. He's saying, he's saying as tempting as any other hope that you may think is in front of you, as tempting as it is to set your hopes on even the best that life offers, a good family, a good education, a good grades in the quiz that's coming up at school, whatever it is that you are tempted to place your hope in, Paul is saying, there, he's drawing a big X with a chalk, and he's saying, do not grab it because you already have it. Stand firm and don't move in it. It's resurrection hope. Everything else will fall away. Everything. Even your best relationships. Death will come. But resurrection hope says, ah, no. Even there, death has no victory. This is the argument Paul's giving us. He's just unveiled a stability, a mountain of stability for us. He's saying, just stand in it. Keep standing. Be immovable. Resurrection hope, it also changes our gestures, though. That's our posture. But it changes our actions. It gives us a posture of stability, but it also enables gestures of spirit-filled, God-honoring, ever-increasing, abounding gestures or activities. Hopefulness makes us helpful. Hopefulness prompts action. Hope changes the way that we live and work in our current day and life. And so let's take a look again at verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, hear those words, be steadfast and immovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So Paul, to me, is a poet. 
You may not think of him that way, but the more you read him, the more you're like, hey, that's, that's actually quite beautiful. There's a beautiful contrast going on in this simple verse. He's saying, when you are immovable, when you are unmoving, when you're unshifting on the hope that is the gospel, you will, in a sense, never stop moving in your day-to-day lives for the Lord. When you are immovable in the hope that is the Lord, you will never stop moving in the work that He has prepared for you to do. Hope gives you inexhaustible resources for the mission. There's four things I noticed about our activity in the Lord, our gestures, our posture, we're standing still. But our gestures, there's four things. I think hope enlarges our capacity to work. The word abound, which is in our verse here, always abounding means overflow. It means excess. It means more and more and more and more and more and more. And it really just means and more and more ad infinitum. It just means and more. It's abounding. And Paul says always abounding. When you have this resurrection chapter 15 hope, that death does not have the final word, you will abound. It gives you resources. The idea, according to Anthony uh, Thistleton, is that you can, I love his phrase, spend and be spent without limit. When you have resurrection hope. Resurrection hope enlarges your capacity. I think of Jesus multiplying the loaves. It's as if the Lord is multiplying your capacities when you set your hope on the future resurrection and not on other things. In fact, the inverse is true. When you set your hope on earthly things like careerism, when you set your hope on a particular vision about how you want your life or how you want the life of your kids to look, you actually have a diminished capacity. It withers you out. But when you set your hope past the horizon of Jesus' return, it enlarges you. Okay, hope enlarges our capacity. I think it also enlarges our scope, the scope of what we consider work in the Lord. Resurrection hope does this. The phrase that Paul uses in our verse is work of the Lord or labor in the Lord. Do you see it? Always abounding in what? In the work of the Lord Knowing what? That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This certainly means evangelism. This certainly means church planting. But it means more than that. Colossians 3.17 is worth looking at if you want to turn there with me again. To the book of Colossians. It's just a few books to your right in your Bible. Just flip a little bit. And you'll run into Colossians. We'll look at chapter 3 verse 17. This is on page 984. says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Another verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so whatever you do, if it's done in reliance upon God, if it's done with a mind to the glory of God, if it's done... um, prayerfully and dependently upon Jesus, it is a work in the Lord. 
Paul is, in other words, breaking down a sacred secular divide, a wall that we tend to build up that never exists in God's word, which says that missionary work is holier than changing a diaper. That says missionary work and evangelism is holier and more spiritual than spreadsheets. Paul's saying, whatever you do, do it to, to the glory of God. And as you do it for his fame, as you do it for his name, you are indeed abounding in the work of the Lord. Resurrection hope enlarges the scope of what you consider godly work. Diapers, befriending, working your job is every bit as much as mercy and evangelism. Okay, another thing I noticed is that hope enlarges not just the scope, it enlarges not just, um, not just the capacity for our work, but it enlarges the horizon of our work. We no longer work with the short term in view, but with an eternal perspective. In my study, I came across one writer who pointed me to the connection between this verse and Luke 14, 13. I'll read it out loud. Just follow along in your mind. It's amazing. Okay, verse 12 starts this way. This is Jesus. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the disenfranchised, in other words, those who are not by, by physical right um, or by any kind of other right, um, insiders, they're outsiders. And he says, invite the outsiders in. And then he gives the rationale. He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, those who have a hope that extends beyond the, the horizon of Jesus' return, those who place their hope and the trajectory of their hope goes to the resurrection, they suddenly no longer live for other people's rewards. It's an amazing thing. And it's a gift. We don't need to be noticed by people if, our resur- if resurrection is our hope. Hope enlarges our horizon. Hope enlarges the dignity of our, of our work. A resurrection hope gives bodily, earthy, messy things dignity and even urgency. Could not come at a more opportune week with what's happened down in Houston. That rescue effort matters to Jesus. You might think we need to save souls, but... We also need to extend mercy to bodies. Because resurrection hope means that in Genesis, God called creation good and his humans are very good. And God is going to redeem the earth and he's going to redeem and resurrect our bodies. And God is therefore not pleased with super spirituality. As C.S. Lewis puts it, don't be more spiritual than God is. God made our bodies. He is going to resurrect our bodies. Therefore, what we do with our bodies is profoundly important. Paul's flow of thought is actually very instructive and challenging to me. That's why we read verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, okay, so he has this amazing resurrection chapter. He has this turn in verse 58, which we're exploring, therefore. And then he says, now, concerning 
the collection for the saints. Paul's flow of thought. For Paul, the resurrection of the body naturally leads to the collection plate. What are they collecting money for? A famine in Jerusalem. Do you see the connection? Do you see Paul's flow of thought? The body matters. We have a resurrection hope. Therefore, pass the plate. If your future is bodily, then we can and must relieve bodies that are in distress. Not just souls. I'll end with this. A retired pastor and author, Tim Keller, he's right. He says, quote, What we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures, he says. Isn't that good? He gives a a sort of make-believe example of this. He writes, Imagine you have two women of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. Okay, got it? You hire both of them and say to each, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms, he goes on, with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30,000. And you tell the second woman at the end of the year, you will pay her $30 million. He goes on, after a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this tedious? Isn't this driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, this is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. (laughs) He goes on, what is going on? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? He says, it's their expectation of the future. What we believe about the future shapes how we live today. We have a sure resurrection future that is given to us by Jesus. And therefore, your hope must, it must, and it will change the way that you live. It will give you a posture of stability, of immovability in that hope. And it will give you empowered ability to work for Him. Listen, I love our name, Hope. I love our name. As you can tell, I love our name. But we are going to be hope in more than just name. Amen? We're going to be hope in more than just name. And if that is true, then we will be a congregation that has a stability in the hope of the resurrection. And we will be a church that abounds. Abounds in whatever we do because of that hope. Let me just pray. Father, we are grateful for this single verse that shows the logic of resurrection and how it impacts our daily living. 
how it gives us hope, how it changes our perspective on our day, Lord. If we are struggling, if we're, if we're lost, if we're confused about what our day is about, if we feel like we're just going to work and we're checking in, we're doing things, but it's like moving pieces on a game we don't understand and we're fed up with that, would you give us the gift of resurrection hope? Some of us may be in this room and we've never considered that, that the gospel is unique because it presents for us a, a victory over death. Because the gospel presents for us not just salvation from our sins, but also a restoration of all things. And we want that to be true. And right now, Lord, we are embracing that to be true. We come to you and repent of our sins and we trust you for the first time this morning. And we ask that you would enlarge that hope that we are now tasting for the first time in our hearts. For those of us who do know this taste and who have tasted it before, enlarge it. And more importantly, Lord, stabilize us upon it. Give us eyes for the chalked X's in our lives that we want to grab, but you are warning us, do not grab. Instead, convince us that the hold that we have now is perfectly sufficient. The hold that we have in you, Jesus. You are holding us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.